0: you might as a, a way of meditation might ask yourself something like where would I be if it were not for Jesus? And when we gather on the Lord's Day we're here with a group of Christians and it might be interesting for some of you especially if you were saved in your latter years to just just think back to what might be just a few years ago and or maybe you could think back to where you're previous peers are now and you just ask where would i be if it weren't for jesus some of you would would probably with a great bit of confidence would say if it weren't for jesus i would probably be in hell right now i would not have lived very long how do i know that well cuz i've got some close peers that are in hell right now and i was right with them or you might say if if it weren't for jesus i would be like some of my other peers who are not in hell, they're not in the pit of despair or sorrow, they're just living their life. Right now they're probably sitting at home, drinking coffee, thinking about what they're going to do for the day, and their life is pretty easy. Or you might say, if it were not for Jesus, I might not be dead, and I might not be at home, but I, I would be in a bad place. I would be in a gutter somewhere. I'd be in a dark alley somewhere. I'd be waking up you know, beside somebody I didn't know, something like that. It's awful to think about where we would be without Jesus, but it's a wonderful thought to think of where we are right now because of Jesus. Where are we right now? Well, We're, we're here. We're worshiping in the assembly of the saints of the Most High God. If you read the Old Testament, it was a, a grave matter whether or not a person was excluded from or welcomed into the assembly. That, that was pretty much the demarcation. You're either in the assembly or you're out of the assembly. We're in the assembly. Praise the Lord. We're worshiping here on the first day of the week because our Lord, Jesus, is risen from the dead. He's alive. He's ascended into the heavens. Because of that, you are here. We are here to worship. And when we worship like this, we... We worship, we can think of it in terms of two eyes. We've got one eye that looks backwards to what Christ has done in His resurrection. Therefore, we worship. And yet we worship with one eye looking forward or, or even looking upward, waiting for His return. The, the worship of the saints is a place where we look backward because of what Christ has done. We're worshiping, but also we're worshiping knowing that there's going to come a day when this, this setting, this kind of worship is exalted to a heavenly and glorified estate And we'll look and see Him as He is when He appears. We long for that. Now, when we consider the glories of Christ, we're here because of Jesus and what He's done. And when we consider the glories of Christ and and what He has done in God's plan of redemption, we very often and repeatedly and without apology, apology and without really the need to feel very creative, articulate the glories of Christ according to two categories or a a twofold moniker, if you will, will say the person and work of Christ. We use that phrase, the person and work of Christ, to summarize all that we know and believe and hold dear about Him. We might even say that it's, it's the person and work of Christ which constitutes the general form of our gospel message. To proclaim the good news is to proclaim who Christ is, And then what He's done, His person and His work. With regard to His person, we're answering the question, who is He? When it comes to Jesus Christ, He is the Son of God incarnate as a man. Two natures, the divine nature and a human nature joined in one unique person. That's, That's the who, that's the person. And Of course, we know apart from both of those natures, we would have no salvation. The person of Christ is very important. If he were man, but not God, well, we have no mediator. We have no one to go to God on our behalf. Well, if he's God, but he's not man, again, we have no mediator. We have no one who can condescend to our estate. We we must have both of those. His person is essential to the gospel that we proclaim. And then his work, equally as essential, perhaps. His work is to answer the question, what that person has done? What did he do? And when we talk about the work of Christ, we typically refer to his life and death and resurrection and and ascension and present intercession. Apart from those, apart from that work, we have no salvation. If he's God, but he does not live and die and rise and ascend into the heavens as a man... We have no salvation. We have no representative in heaven. But if if merely a man lived and then died and rose from the dead and went up into the heavens, but he were not God, well, that, that work that that man performed would not in any way be effectual for all of us. There's no way for it to be applied to us. His work is grand but it's useless apart from His unique person. It always goes together, the person and the work. The work, it's a great story, but because of the person who accomplished the work, it's a saving story. It's a story of redemption. It's the substance of who Christ is and the substance of what He has done together which form the essential significance or His essential significance in the purposes of God and the plan of redemption person and work now I said it that we usually don't feel the need to be creative I actually was though a little this week just to sort of simplify that and put it in into terms of alliteration two M words that mean the same thing as person and work or give us the same picture we might think of the work of Christ according to his matter and ministry the matter his substantial form, who he is, what makes him who he is, his person, matter, and then his ministry, his supreme function, what he did, matter and ministry. So we could say that the matter and ministry of Christ Form his essential significance in the plan of redemption. Apart from his matter, who he is, there's no redemption. Apart from the ministry, what he did, there's no redemption. But when you put that matter and that ministry together, the person and the work of Christ, that's what makes it a saving, redemptive work. Apart from the matter and ministry of Christ, we would not be here. There would be no salvation, there would be no hope of restoration with God. All we would have would be the haunting thought of hell that awaits us as soon as our heart stops beating. Apart from the matter and ministry of Christ. But, because of the matter and the ministry, who He is and what He did, we're here. That's why we're here. We have salvation. We're restored and reconciled to God. And we... Keep our eyes toward the heavens waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ because of who He is and what He did. His person, His work, His matter, and His ministry. And if you think about it, throughout history, the great attacks of the enemy upon the Christian faith have always been almost exclusively aimed at those two areas. His matter and His ministry. His person and His work. Who He is and what He did. Some say he's God but not man. Some say he's man but not God. Others come along and they attack his work. He, he, it wasn't really a, a penal and substitutionary work to save sinners. It was a, a great example, a good moral uh, uh, example to follow. Things like that. Attacking the matter and the ministry of Christ because the devil knows that if he can corrupt the truth in either of those two areas, matter and ministry, with regard to Christ... He can ruin and even destroy the faith of many. Now under the old covenant, the people of God served under the typological economy of the temple and the tabernacle. Tabernacle and then the temple later. The tabernacle and the temple we know were shadows which pointed to the person and work of Christ. The temple was a shadow pointing to the matter of and ministry of christ and just as with christ if you pay attention to how the the substance of the 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 biblical data comes to us with regard to the tabernacle and temple if you pay attention these things were constituted by god with very specific details regarding their matter and ministry what we read the old testament what fills up the most detailed parts of the scriptures The matter and ministry of the temple. What is it to be made of? How was it to be made? All of that detailed very specifically. And then you have the ministry of the tabernacle and the temple. What is to take place there? How is it to take place? When is it to take place? All of it detailed very specifically. The matter and the ministry. So it was with the tabernacle or the temple as it is with Christ. It was the substance of its makeup and the substance of its work which formed the essential significance of it in God's plan of redemption. Or we could say the matter and ministry of the temple formed its essential significance in the plan of redemption. And if either of those could be corrupted or ruined or destroyed, the whole economy would crumble. If the purity and prescription of God with regard to the temple was abandoned, well, its ministry would be useless doesn't work anymore. Or if someone were to happen to come along and destroy the structure of the temple, it ceases. The worship ceases. Its ministry would no longer exist. And even then, the devil knew that if he could corrupt the sanctity of either of those two areas, he could ruin and even destroy the faith of many. many. The matter and ministry of the temple prefigures points toward the matter and ministry of Christ. Well, now in the New Testament, we don't go to a tabernacle or a temple. We serve under the New Covenant economy in the form of the church, the mystical body of Christ and the temple of the Lord. And just as with Christ and as with the shadows given in the temple, the church, and here I'm going to be talking today about the local church, this right here, the church locates its significance in the purposes of God according to those same two categories, matter and ministry. Matter. Who is the church? Who makes up the church? Who is in and who is out? What what is the substance of the church? And then the ministry of the church. What does she do? What is her work? In the church, her matter and ministry form her essential significance in the purposes of redemption. If you mess up the matter of the church and you let a bunch of people in who shouldn't be in, the church is gone. If you mess up the ministry of the church, what she's supposed to be doing, the church is gone. And it's here in the the matter and ministry or the form and function of the church where her real importance is found that the attacks against the church often rise. The enemy of Christ will attack the church by corrupting or ruining or infecting the people, the matter. Go after the matter. Or the enemy of Christ will attack the church by corrupting or ruining the ministry of the church, her work, and in particular, the truth, which is the substance of her Ministry. Why? Well, because the devil knows that if he can corrupt either of these two areas, he can ruin and even destroy the faith of many. He knows that if he can fill the church with evil men, if he can turn good men against one another in the church, or if he can dilute the truth of which the church is a pillar and buttress, then he can ruin the church and ruin the ministry of Christ on the earth. Just as with Christ... So it was with the temple of the Old Covenant, so it is with the temple of the New Covenant. And this is exactly what was happening in Corinth. The church was being spoiled as to her matter and ministry. As to matter, the people, the saints had turned against each other. They were quarreling. As to ministry, the truth of the gospel had been diluted with worldly wisdom. The devil knows where to attack. Go after the people, go after the truth, you destroy the whole thing, the matter, the ministry. Or we could say the person and work of the church was under attack. The person, who she is, and her work was under attack. And Paul has written not only to rebuke their wrong thinking in chapters 1 and 2, but now in chapter 3, he's sort of giving them the positive correction and training in righteousness, By the power of the Spirit, He's seeking to renew their minds so that they can think properly. They have to think properly about the men that God sends to bring the Word to them. In verse 5, we saw they are servants. In verses 6 through 9, they do have their function, but they're not preeminent. And last week in verses 10 to 15, each one's work will be judged according to Christ. That's what we've seen so far. So, someone might read that, and and Paul's very good at at preemptively addressing uh, an assumption or an objection. So, somebody might read that. Okay, they're servants. They have their function, but they're not preeminent. Each one's work will be judged by Christ. Okay, then what's the big deal? So, we labor, we stay busy. Someday we find out maybe our work wasn't the best, and it's burned up. We are saved. Yeah, it's through fire. But, but we're saved, snatched out of the flames, but saved nonetheless. So, really, what's the big deal? If our work is proper in the church or not. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul is going to reiterate again why this is such a big deal. He has reminded them of how they ought to think about their ministers. Now, he's going to remind them of how they ought to think about the church itself. What is the church? And he reminds them here that the church is not a social club. The church is not just a voluntary meeting of friends. The church is not a coincidental assembly of people who happen to share many of the same convictions. It's not, the church is not a group think or a, a, a time where we get together and collaborate ideas to promote some shared cause. In the world, that's not what the church is. No, Paul takes them to the most sacred imagery that any of them, whether Jew or Gentile, could have ever imagined, and that is the temple. The temple. And he warns them of the great danger of doing anything which would harm the church by taking them or taking that image of the building. Remember, he started out with a field. I planted the Paulus watered. And then he transitioned from a field to a building. I laid the foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Okay, what is the most exalted form of building on the earth? It is the temple of the living God. A temple of God. And that's what he's saying here. This is not a social club. We don't just happen to show up and bounce ideas off of one another what do you like? Well, I like this. Well, I like that too. Maybe that'd be cool for us to do that. No, it's a temple of the living God. And so lest anybody would think that verse 15 cuts shoddy workmanship, plenty of slack. Okay, your work's going to be burned up, but so what? You'll be saved. What's the big deal? No. Now he, he, he's going to warn them of the awful perils that come to those who would corrupt the church of God. And we break these two verses up into two heads. Number one, we have an indictment concerning the nature of the church. And then number two, we have a threat revealing God's interest in the church. So an indictment concerning the nature of the church and a threat revealing God's interest in the church. So number one, an indictment concerning the nature of the church. An indictment is a could be defined one of two ways. It could be a, a formal charge of wrongdoing, like you were charged with a crime, you've been indicted, or it could be something which shows the poor state of a person or a system. For example, you might say you might hear someone say, poor test scores were an indictment on the school system. See, it's it's the, the test scores act as the indictment because they show something Is not right over here. The system is messed up. And that's what we see here. It's an indictment. It is showing the poor state of the saints in Corinth. I call this an indictment. Look at verse 16. At the beginning of the verse, he says, Do you not know? Do you not know? And that's meant to be taken rhetorically. He's actually asserting, You should know this. But he's asking in the form of a question. In chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That's common sense. You should know this. Everybody knows a little leaven leavens the lump. In chapter 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's common sense. You should know this. In chapter 9, verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple Common sense. They should know that. Chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Common sense. Everybody should know that. When he asked, do you not know, he's saying, what I'm about to say is common sense. Everybody should know this. This is equivalent to when Christ said, have you not read? You got a Bible. Y'all didn't read it? That's what he was saying. Y'all didn't read it? The religious leaders who we know read their scriptures a lot. But it was an indictment. Have, have y'all, not, y'all not read the book? An indictment. When he asks, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That's meant, what he's saying is this should be a commonly understood principle of the faith. You should know this, and you should be acting according to this. It's common sense. And so the fact that Paul has to ask this question in this way is an indictment. What he's saying is the way that y'all are acting is not in accord with what should be common sense among everybody. He's saying to them, Your own knowledge, what you know, is the indictment upon your actions. Now, what is the truth here that should be common sense? What should they know? What has to do with the nature of the church itself? He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, he's speaking to them and he's addressing what we call the local church. He's addressing them as a group. The word you, in both of these verses, every time you see the word you, it is a plural form. We say what? Y'all. Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in y'all? It's plural. But notice that he also says a singular temple. He doesn't say y'all are God's temples. That is another truth that he's going to bring up in chapter 6. The individual saint is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Here he's addressing the whole, you all are a singular temple. He's making a statement concerning them all together as a singular unit, what we would call the local church. I thought about this this morning that we say this phrase all the time. I don't know that we ever really stop to think about what we mean there. When we say local church, we don't mean the church that's close by. Local, usually when we say local, we say it's right over there. If you go on the West Coast and the waves are terrible and they're very dangerous, and you might see a sign in by the ocean that says locals only. Uh, if you're from out of state, don't surf here. You'll die. Locals only. Th- that's not what we mean here by local, the, the nearby church. By, by local here, what we mean is it can be found in a particular place. A, a, a geographical location. It's, it's settled and identifiable according to a spot. It's, it's local. It, it has a, we might say, it has a locale. The local church. Now, what does he say about the local church? Well, he says, you are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in you. This is his point. And this is huge. We could, we could write over this, this statement. Huge if true. And it is true. This is massive. The local church, the body of believers... That make up a covenanted society of saints in a particular place is in itself God's temple. God's temple. The dwelling place of God. Well, how so? Well, he says, God's Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit of God is God. If the Spirit dwells within the church, the Spirit or the church becomes the dwelling place of God. Therefore, we could say each and every true local church is a temple and dwelling place of God. That's what the church is, the temple of God. So this is the indictment concerning the nature of the church. They should have known this. And their actions, dividing up, quarreling, allowing worldly wisdom to infiltrate their practices and their teaching, all of that has betrayed the fact that they have either ignored or forgotten what they should have known about the nature of the church. This is the temple of God. It's not a social club. It's not an interest group. It's not an activist group. It's not an open forum for tossing opinions and ideas back and forth. The church in the New Testament local expression is the temple of the living God. Huge if true. Massive implications. Now, we don't have the time to even cover all the implications. Too many to mention. Your mind will will be filled with implications if you just stop and go back to your understanding of the Old Testament, your reading about the temple that was built there or the tabernacle, what God prescribed, how they were to conduct themselves, how God's disposition was towards that place, how their disposition was to be toward that place. Your mind will be full of implications of this truth, the church, is now the temple. But let me just give you three, very briefly, implications of this truth. Number one, to be a member of the church requires constant attention to this fact. Paul says, do you not know? He could probably have come in here to some of us and said, do you not know? And you just said, uh, um, that, that sounds. that's actually a new truth to me. If you're a member of the church, you you need to know this and and bring this to your mind regularly and often. This is the temple of God. We ought to consider this and think about this. Forgetting or ignoring this truth is usually the off-ramp where we go off into so many errors with regard to the church because we've forgotten it's the temple of God. And when we begin to veer off, or we could think of it this way. As soon as we forget or ignore, that's where we are, we are getting in the on-ramp and allowing errors to come into the church. Because we just forget. We don't realize what we're doing when we're coming here. Think about the assembly. The solemn convocation under the Old Covenant. And you can imagine the Israelites making long journeys to be in the temple of the Lord. What was it like? It wasn't like walking into Walmart. Walmart. It wasn't like going to Target. It wasn't like a greeter meeting you in the parking lot, giving you a t-shirt and having you sign a card. It was a solemn, holy, sacred convocation. That's what the church is. Number two, all things in the church are to be done according to the pattern. Just as it was with the tabernacle in the temple. Remember, the tabernacle was built and, and we repeatedly read, according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, according to the pattern that God gave to Moses. That's how the tabernacle was to be built. When it came to the temple, God gave the detailed plans to David, who then passed it on to his son Solomon to be built according to that pattern. Don't add to the pattern. Don't subtract from the pattern. Follow the pattern. And so also in the church, as to her matter and ministry, the church has been given detailed prescriptions or blueprints with regard to Who makes up the church? How we are to conduct ourselves in the church and how we are to minister in the church and outside the church. The Bible lays this stuff out. Follow the pattern. Negatively, then the third implication would be that there are no free-for-alls in the church. No free-for-alls. In our our country, we often use the term democracy or democracy representative republic to, de- to describe our, our government set up. And we think that that is the preeminent, apex, most glorious form of government. It's not. It's not. You know how I know that? Because heaven is not a democracy. Heaven is not going to be a representative republic. It is a monarchy. One ruler, one king. Now the Jews... And the Gentiles of Corinth would have been able to understand this. For, for us, it's confusing. For some reason, it's confusing. For them, they would have understood this very clearly. Again, go back to the Old Testament. Okay, Imagine a Jew, or even under the, the New Testament, prior to the abolition of this system, the Jew walking into the temple precincts. Just imagine you're, you're following that person in. Or we could even go to Corinth and say, imagine you're following the average Corinthian into a, a temple to a pagan deity. Okay, You're watching them go in. In either of these cases, how would that individual be expected to conduct themselves once they got in? What, what would be the, the, the manner of, of conduct? Do you think the rule would be, act any way you please? Do you think that when they walked into the temple there were signs that said please seat yourself or please suit yourself? Would the code of conduct in these temples whether the Jewish temple or pagan temples be, hey, whatever you feel like doing or whatever you feel like saying please avail yourself. Who are we to tell anybody what they are to do? I mean, it's worship and you get to define worship however you uh, feel. Whatever makes you feel right, you do it. So just worship however you please. We'll be over here in the corner to answer any questions you might have. We know that's absurd, right? That, that would not have happened. You go into the temple under Judaism, there are clear prescriptions. You don't step out of line. And even pagan temples, there was a manner and form of worship. You don't step out of line. And yet how many people today will be admitted into a local church or the membership of the local church and then immediately just begin conducting themselves in any way they please? As if there was a sign that says, please seat yourself. And I'm not saying you can't pick your seats. But as if the, 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 the code of conduct was just free for all. Just do whatever you want. Who are we who is God to dictate and define what worship is for you? Just make yourself at home. How many people will join themselves to a church and very often conduct themselves in a way that's less respectful than they do their own place of employment. Their own employer gets more respect than the house of God, the temple of the Lord. Employer says, be here at 8, you're there at 745. Church service starts at 10, I might get there at 10.05, you know, just whenever we're we struggling. And I know that there are things that happen. But I'm saying very often our, our perspective toward the church is lower, we have less respect than we would for an earthly employer. Why? Because you get paid there. You get money there. We very often don't think of the reward that comes from worshiping the Lord. And so we, we must think, when we think about the church, temple of the Lord. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Lord, a holy place, a place of purity, of sanctity, of reverence and awe, of duty and delight and expectation? And I don't. I'm not just referring to when we gather. This is a large part of our church experience. But it's not just the people and the place and the gathering. There's more to church life than this. But the Jews would have never come into the temple to worship and then leaving, start bragging about which priest they think done a better job, or murmur under their breath that the sons of Issachar would have probably done a lot better job than the sons of Levi. God should have picked them. No. Here's the prescription. Here are the orders. Follow the prescription. Act in faith. Obey me. That's what I command. That's what God said. But this is akin to what the Corinthians had done. And many today treat the local church in the exact same way. But I think we need to understand the local church is a holy place. Holy unto the Lord. A place of reverence and sobriety. A place that is to be conducted according to the pattern. Her matter and her ministry are dictated by the specific precepts of her Lord. So we have an indictment concerning the nature of the church. Secondly, we see a threat revealing God's interest in the church. Seeing that the nature of the church is so sacred, like the tabernacle or the temple, even the holy place of the tabernacle and temple itself, seeing that the church... Is so sacred, would we not expect that God has something to say about those who might desecrate the church? Under the Old Covenant, we know foreigners would be put to death for coming into the tabernacle or the temple. Even the high priest only entered into the most holy place once a year, and that not without blood, lest he himself be put to death. Now, think about it. That's severe. The language of our confession is the, the unallayed rigor of the law. It's severe. It's rigorous. But think, should we expect that God's interest in the church, which He purchased with the blood of His own Son, is, or is going to be less than His interest in the shadowy type of the Old Testament? He was severe then. Why? Because He took great interest in His holy place. Okay? We don't have the temple and tabernacle anymore. We come to the church. So God has just really chilled out now. He's he's lowered the bar now because we've entered into the church age instead of the old covenant system. I I think not. I don't think He's less to be reverenced. I don't think that our, our attitude and perspective toward things should be less than what we're expected is God less concerned about the church which is the substance than he was the temple, the shadow of course not now that doesn't mean that we have all of the same stipulations we have uh, when when it comes to particular prescriptions we have a lot less and that does open us up to a little more freedom but that doesn't mean that God's interest in the church is lowered like he really doesn't care that much about the church he really cared about the temple. No, no. He cared about the temple. He really cares about his blood-bought bride. That's, that's what I'm getting at. Accordingly, we see this, this warning, which reveals that God has great interest in the purity and safety of his church. I said it's a threat. He says if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. The word destroy, some, some translations will use alternate words in the two parts of this verse, and that's there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's the same word in both parts. But the word could be translated corrupt. If anyone corrupts God's temple, God will corrupt him. Or to ruin, if anybody ruins God's temple, God will ruin him. Or harm Or spoil, if anybody spoils God's temple, God's going to spoil him. If anybody harms God's temple, God's going to harm him. If anybody destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. In other words, Paul says, if you mess with God's church, God's going to mess with you. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to go well for the people who mess with God's church. Again, if profaning the temple was cause for death under the old covenant, What do you think it looks like for God to ruin someone who corrupts his church under the new covenant, his bride? And I think this should serve as a warning to us, as it was to them. Conduct yourself according to the pattern. There's safety in the pattern, there's fear outside of the pattern. Build according to the plans given by David's greater son, Christ himself. Build on the foundation and build using only the truth of God's word. In many cases for the church, it would be better for us to sit in reverential fear waiting for God to make clear his prescriptions for us than to run on in a flurry of busyness and risk profaning God's temple. Why is that? Why this threat? Notice what he says in the second part of the verse. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. God's temple is holy, set apart for God. God's temple is holy. It is to be kept pure. God's temple is holy. It's not like human corporations and agencies. Have all of the creative arts meetings and things you want for an earthly corporation. Have fun. Run at it. Enjoy it. The church is not like that. Those, those, Those worldly systems are very often holy unto man, set apart to man, for the glory of man. But God's temple is not that way. It's set apart unto God. The local church of Jesus Christ is the temple of God consecrated for God, by God Himself, indwelt by the Spirit of God Himself. It's not designed to serve our carnal interests. It is designed to serve spiritual interests. Let's let's not think that the church is not meant to prosper us. But that is not always carnally. We should seek to meet one another's temporal, carnal needs as much as we can. But ultimately, it's for the benefit of our souls. It's not meant to advance our temporal prosperity. It's for our eternal prosperity. The church is God's temple and is to be conducted in God's way. As to its matter, only those who God welcomes through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit are to be welcomed in in the membership of the church. We are Baptists, which means we believe in regenerate church membership we believe that this temple is made of living stones not dead stones that's who makes up the church we don't want unconverted people coming into the membership of the church we want lost people to come to our worship we want them to hear the gospel for sure as to its ministry the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth the truth is the ground of all of our unity all of our love toward one another God's word is the only certain rule of faith and obedience. The truth of the gospel is the only message we have for the lost world. Matter, ministry, according to the pattern. And the devil knows that if he can corrupt the truth in any of those two areas, he can ruin and even destroy the faith of many. We read in Revelation twelve seventeen that the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. The dragon, the devil, wants us. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to ruin the ministry of the church. And he knows that if he can fill the church with evil men, well, he can ruin the church. the church is full of lost people, well, the church is no different than the world. The devil knows that if he can turn good men against one another, he can ruin the church. He knows that if he can get men to dilute the truth just a little, he can ruin the church. Now somebody might think, "Well, did not Christ say that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church? And in, an, in an ultimate and universal sense, that, that is absolutely true. The devil does not win. He already knows that more than we know it most of the time. He, he's already lost. He, ultimately, he cannot win. But who among us is not aware of some local church somewhere that has been devastated or ruined or even destroyed by these kinds of attacks upon the matter and ministry of the church? Individual local churches get destroyed and ruined all the time. The greater church will prevail. God's God's people are secure. So there's the threat that reveals God's interest in the church. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Why? Because God's temple is holy. It's holy to Him. It's special to Him. And so we have here a great warning to those who would be found corrupting, ruining, and or destroying the church of God. Now I'll start positively and work my way back to this warning. Positively. If he's saying those, if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. Well, then what does God want? He wants people who do the opposite. The need of the hour, as it's always been, is is what we call churchmen. Churchmen. This applies to men, women, boys, and girls. Churchmen. God desires churchmen. Men, people who love the church. God desires men, women, boys, and girls who love the church, who want to serve the local church. God desires men who will devote themselves to the local church. God desires men who will build their lives around the ministry of the local church. And again, I'm not talking just about the Sunday worship. I'm talking about the whole ministry of the whole people, the whole body in the world. That's what God's after. That's what He wants. People who will give themselves to building up. And the great threat is for those who tear down. Now, we typically hear things like that and we, we, we want to say, well, what about my family? though?" You're saying I've got to give myself to the church. What about my family? I've got great news. Your family, yes, your family will flourish and be much happier and healthier if you would just devote yourself to the ministry of the church. And build your life around the local church. What about all the concerns in, in our, our, our state and our nation and the civil spheres? Yes, the civil sphere will prosper and be helped if Christians would just give themselves in fullness to the ministry of the church in, in every land. These are not in competition. But I'll also say this many times we put them in competition, or we may find that they be in competition but I will say this because some of us need the reminder your family as a unit will not last endure past the day of your last breath your family you're not going to get to heaven and and grab your family and say finally we're reunited together as a family unit that's going to be over that's for this age and when it comes to human governments they will not last beyond Christ's return they won't Christ even said very explicitly, that he came to divide up families. That he came to turn family members against one another in many cases. And we know the Bible says that God in Christ raises up kingdoms and he tears down kingdoms. And he raises up kingdoms and he tears down kingdoms. And there's only one institution that is promised to endure for eternity and and will only be made more unified, bigger, stronger, better, Always and forever, that is the church. The church is always on the increase. Always on the incline. Always being built. These other things, our our families and nations, we can't say that about them. We don't set them aside. We don't throw them away. We don't ignore them. But we need to keep these things in a proper perspective. They don't have to be in competition. But if there's a competition, the church wins. Christ's bride wins. God desires devoted people. So let me ask, how do your earthly treasures, think time, money, personal resources, how do they funnel into, or we might even say, how do they dovetail in with the ministry of the local church? Does your Monday through Saturday lifestyle show the world a devotion to the local church? Parents, as you steer and guide your children as they grow and and as they get older, there will be times when you open doors of uh, activity for them. Now you can do this. and Maybe we we can go and do that thing and we can go and do that thing. As that happens as you sort of roll out the carpet for your children to grow and mature in the world, in all of that, do your children hear you saying the local church is the most important thing you will ever be a part of in your life? Is that that the the declaration that they receive? Or do they hear churches on Sunday and all this other stuff that is fun and joyful in the world, we have... To give our lives to that. How do, what do they hear you think? Or what do they hear you say through your activities? Your, your children read you. Your children, they're saying, well my, my, well, my parents let me do this. And they let me do that. And they let me do that. And they let me do that. They're, they're hearing in, in, in all of our guiding of them. They are hearing us say something. Now, I think we know that attending worship on the Lord's Day is a priority on that day. I think most of us understand that. That today, when you got up, you thought, well, the priority today is to, to go to church, to worship. But that's not life. That's just one day. This is just one day. And this is only one piece of the ministry of the church. Is your The question is, is your life given to serve the whole church? Is your life given given to opportunities to serve a portion of the church? Do you set aside time to serve a single family in the church? Or we could make it pretty much as easy as we could make it. What about a single, solitary individual in the church? If you're honest... And you take this past week into account, or if it was a busy and exceptional week, the past several weeks into account. Think about your life. Did you do anything to show that the interest of God is also your interest? Anything at all? Did anything happen where somebody could say, I can see that the priority in that person's life is their church, the ministry of God on the earth? Or would you have to say, well, if you examine my life, people would see that my time and my life is centered around building my temple and decorating and orchestrating things around the worship of myself. You see, God desires people who are devoted to what He's doing in the church. Devoted men. Now, these all relate to the positive aspect of what Paul's saying. As I said, we should be working for unity and purity and the strength of the church to build up the church in both her matter and ministry. We should aim for that. I think we covered that fairly extensively in in that series on unity. But the, the force of Paul's words here are actually negative. It's actually a threat or a warning. Paul is addressing what will happen to those who are not only not doing the positive work of serving the church, but who are actively corrupting and ruining or damaging and even possibly destroying the church. That's who he's talking to. So then I I would ask, are you corrupting the church? Are you corrupting The church. To corrupt means to debase by introducing errors. To infect. This word could also mean to ruin, which means to cause great and usually irreparable damage. Are you corrupting the church? This would be an individual who in their being or in their doing, they actually contradict the pattern given by Christ. This would refer to any ideology promoted or practiced that is contrary to the truth. Now we corrupt and ruin the truth by introducing anything that is contrary to or supplemental to it with regard to the church. According to the pattern. Don't add to it. Just do what it says. Don't bring in worldly wisdom and say, well, I see this biblical principle and I see this worldly principle and let's see how we can make them work together. No, you've, just, you've corrupted the truth. We corrupt and potentially ruin the church body when we conduct ourselves in ways contrary to or foreign to Scripture. Are you corrupting the church? Is there anything in your life when you're not here, we all put on our best behavior here, we know that. We wear the best clothes we got, most of us. We're we're on our best behavior. In your life, is there anything in your life that away from this assembly or with this assembly that's actually infecting the church with some ruinous disease that would eventually or will eventually destroy it if it's not eradicated. Or maybe maybe think this way. This is what helps me. Is there anything that you do or believe that if everybody... Did that thing, or believe that thing, it would ruin the church. Very often we 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 act like good postmoderns, right? Well, what's right for me, it might not be right for you, and what's right for you might not be right for me. So I can do this little thing over here, and it, and it's it's really fine. Well, that's not how biblical truth works. What if everybody did that? What if everybody did what you do? What if everybody believed? what you believed, would that build the church or would that ruin the church? Remember, Paul said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. There was only one, as far as we know, there was only one adulterous man in Corinth. Big deal, right? Paul says, get him out. He's got to go, quick. Next time you're together, get him gone. Why? Well, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The longer that one adulterous man sits in that assembly, that wickedness is permeating the whole body. Is there anything that you do or believe that if every member of the church did that thing or believed that thing, it would destroy the church? If everybody in the church mimicked your prayer life, would that build the church or would that ruin the church? Think about it. If every member of the church were as committed to the meetings of the church as you were, would that build the church? or would that ruin the church If everyone had your your perspective when it came to intentional service toward others everybody had your exact mindset about serving other people would that build the church or would that ruin the church If everybody in their private thoughts about the other members of this church thought the way you thought thought the thoughts you think would that build the church or would that ruin the church? If every, if every member of the church in their private conversations talked about other members of the church the way you talk about other members of the church in private conversations, would that build the church? Or would that ruin the church? If everybody was as zealous about evangelism as you are, would there be any evangelism? Or would it all disappear? If every member of the church had your, your Bible reading and study habits, would anybody be reading their Bible? Would that build the church or would that ruin the church? If everybody had your schedule throughout the week, the way you conduct yourself from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, every day of the week, if everybody followed your schedule, would that build the church or would that eventually ruin the church? If every household... Conducted family worship with the consistency that you do at your house. Would that build the church? Or would that ruin the church? Is there anything that you do or believe that if every member of this church did that thing or believed that thing, it would destroy this church? Now I think that we could think of some general things. Like if I just said... Everybody, throw out some things that you think would corrupt the church or ruin the church as to her matter and her ministry. Most of us could probably think of some general things. Those who teach. If if we begin to mix a little worldly wisdom in with the teaching of God's word, that will ruin the church. I know that. We must understand that. Anybody who stands here must understand. You bring worldly wisdom and mix it in with the teaching of God's word, That will destroy the church. That doesn't mean we, we won't keep meeting. Oh, we might meet for years. We might grow and flourish, be the biggest church in the community. But that'll be a ruined church. Those of you who hear, if you hear the Word of God and the application of it, but then you also meet it with your own worldly wisdom in the application of it for you, that will ruin the church. Because you won't be applying the truth of God's Word. It'll be your own mixture. Anyone who mixes worldly philosophies In with the practices of the church will corrupt the church. Any kind of human creativity that is introduced into the worship of God will corrupt the church. Anytime we mix dead stones among the living, we will corrupt the church. That's why we're intentional about elder interviews and things like that with membership. We want to make sure as much as we can that people seem to be legitimate Christians. We don't want to inadvertently bring lost people into the church and make that a regular habit but that would ruin the church. And as I thought about this, my mind went to our confession and the stress that it lays upon the health and purity of the church as it addresses her matter and her ministry. Listen to these statements just from our our confession. Those who make up the local church are those, quote, professing the faith of the gospel, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation. That's who makes up the church. They are to walk before the Lord in all the ways of obedience which He prescribeth to them in His Word. They are to walk together according to the appointment of Christ. We are to carry on that order in worship and discipline which He hath instituted. It says, All that are admitted under the privileges of the church are also under the censures and government thereof according to the rule of Christ. No church members upon any offense taken by them having performed their duty required of them toward the person they are offended at ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances. You see, clearly our Baptist forefathers understood or saw the importance of maintaining the purity and unity of both the matter and ministry of the church. There are rules for who is in. There are rules for who is out. There are rules for what is taught. There are rules for what is not taught. There are rules for how we ought to live and people who contradict those rules are not to be allowed in the church. That's how the church functions. That should not be strange to us if we keep in our minds the temple of God. The temple of God. It's contrary to our flesh, but it's not contrary to Scripture. If you find yourself living contrary to these principles, which are clearly gleaned from the Scriptures, then you're in danger of corrupting and possibly destroying the church. And God says if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. If when you leave here, you destroy your own profession by errors averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation, you are in danger of corrupting the church. If you privately hold beliefs contrary to Scripture, you're in danger of corrupting the church. Or if when you leave here, your life is just generally unholy and worldly, you are, by being here, corrupting the church. And God says if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. If you do not walk before God in obedience, which he has prescribed in his word, you're in danger of corrupting the church. And if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. If rather than walking together, you choose a pathway of division and sectarianism and isolation... You are in danger of corrupting God's church. And if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. You say, how, how am I corrupting something if I just want to be by myself? Because God said, don't. God says, he who isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment. It's easy to be by yourself. You might feel a little bit of usually false humility in your private prayers. Sometimes it's true humility in your private prayers. But if we're honest, it's easy to sit by yourself and read and pray and just do everything by yourself. That's, that's easy. No conflict, no no argumentation, no no rubbing or friction. That's easy just to be by yourself. The problem with that is God said don't. God said you've got to be with these people. It's hard, right. God said that's, that's what it's for. It's going to smooth you out a little bit. If you... Do not uphold the order in worship and discipline that God has instituted in the church. You're in danger of corrupting God's church. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. If you say, well, I'll join the church and I'll attend worship and I'll give a hat tip to God's temple on the Lord's day, but I'm not subjecting myself to the censures and government of the church according to the rule of Christ you are in danger of corrupting God's church. You don't get the privileges without being subjected to the censures and government of the church. God says if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. If you're the kind of person who thinks that disturbing the order or the assemblies or the ordinances of the church is the way to make your opinion and feelings known, you are in danger of corrupting the church. And God says if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. If any of these things describe you, and this is just confessional stuff, you should repent today. Turn from these things. Let let them go. Why? Why is there this severity? Because God's temple is holy. And you are God's temple. God's temple is holy. When you corrupt, ruin, disturb, and disrupt the peace of the church, you are touching the apple of God's eye. It's not a light thing. It's not a small thing. When you go about trying to steady some perceived error in the church in ways contrary to the commands of God, you are touching God's ark. Right? It's about to fall. Then let it fall. It shouldn't have been on that card in the first place. Don't touch it. You touch it, you die. Why? I was just trying to steady it. Because God said don't. You don't touch it. Remember Uzzah? Don't touch the ark. Let it fall. It would be better that it fall under God's providence because the people had it on a cart they shouldn't have had it on than for you to reach out your hand trying to steady it with great intentions, but you disobeyed the commandments of God. When you pretend as though you can come and bring anything that you feel is acceptable as worship. You can just come and do whatever you want to. That's offering strange fire before the Lord. That's Nadab and Abihu. When you bring various forms of idolatry or worldliness into the church, and you parade them before the eyes of the people of God as if to say, God's ways are okay, but I'll do my own thing. This is just what we've chosen For my family, and we're going to do this, and you parade that before the eyes of the people of God. It's like Zimri parading a Midianite woman before the eyes of the people of God, and God will reward the man who puts a spear through you and her. It's serious. All of those instances in Scripture, when people dealt in a relaxed manner with the the holy things of God, they were met with swift death. Kill them. Now, if God was that severe with the old holy things, how do you think He is with regard to the new holy things? Now, we ought to be grateful that because of Jesus Christ, there is mercy. There is mercy. Most of us, not all of us, if we're honest, we would say that we have been guilty in some form or fashion, whether in thought or deed or practice, of doing something that would have corrupted and destroyed the church if God had not intervened. We've all been there. We've all been there. We would admit that there there was some point that if the purity and health of the church was just rested on my shoulders for a day or for an hour, the whole thing would have been destroyed. Because I I would have ruined it. We've all been there. We've all had strange beliefs or rebellious practices or some stubborn habit that we held on to that we thought, well, this will mesh with the church. And we found out later, it's not going to work. I just got to let it go. We've all been there. And even now we find ourselves needing to be purified and cleansed and rescued more and more from impurities and ruinous habits. What does, that, what does all this do? It helps us or it should help us motivate us to look forward to the heavenly temple that's made without hands. The heavenly temple. Nothing defiled ever enters that city. Now we often hear that as, as a very fearful thing. And if you are defiled, that is a fearful thing. But for those who are the people of God, think about it. Nothing defiled will ever enter that city. Nothing. You can't bring anything defiled in and nobody else can bring anything defiled in. Praise and love and thanksgiving will engulf every soul in that city. There will be no animosity. There will be no quarreling, no divisions. There will be fullness of joy and pleasure Forevermore. It helps us to look forward. We, we want that. And so we should let these warnings and the realities of the present state of God's temple turn our eyes heavenward. Listen to this, this one author. Quote, "...as the stones which Solomon used were all hewn and prepared before they were brought to the temple... So all the stones of the celestial house or the members of the church triumphant are afore prepared for glory. That means we're prepared beforehand. Now is the time. We say it's hard. It's difficult. There's affliction. There's trial. There's there's conflict. There's quarreling. We've got to guard against impurities. Guard against things that would ruin the church. It's so difficult. That's what he's saying. Now is the time when they're Natural roughness and asperity is taken away by the skillful operation of the divine spirit and the various afflictions of this life which exercise them in this veil of tears that they may rest forever and ever in the calm regions of everlasting peace where no jarring sound is heard any more than there was of axes and hammers in the building of the temple. The the, the work of the church and being a member of the church now, it is hard. And there are... There are there's the the constant trial and and testing and pushing of the heart and the mind to, to, to keep right before the Lord, to put away sin, to put on righteousness and to strive. And, and it is a weary, a wearying thing. Supplement with your your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness. Right? The longer I control myself, It gets harder. God says, you better get some steadfastness in there because you're controlling yourself this long. It's going to be hard. That's now. The stones of the temple are being hewn, chiseled, hammered now away so that they can be brought in. And as the temple is being put together and constructed, the heavenly temple, there's none of that. No abrasion, no hammering, no chiseling, no scraping. So we must heed the warning We must examine our own hearts and lives. We must work to serve and defend the purity and health of the church because our King deserves all of our efforts. As to his matter, he is all glorious. As to his ministry, he is victorious. And we only have a few more days to work until we will see him as he is. So we remain steadfast. It's worth it. Let's pray.